than anyone could possibly imagine. He's more large, more immense, more powerful, more all-knowing, more all-everything than we could possibly imagine. He's so different from us, the transcendence, his immensity. On the other side, his imminence is he is near. Emmanuel, God with us. Christmas, we celebrate his imminence. He comes as man. And I've always been intrigued by the reality that, that you can't really understand and grapple with and appreciate the beauty of his transcendence unless you connect with imminence. That this amazingly great God would become human as a baby and would live and die, that connects back to his transcendence again, to conquer sin and Satan and death. So his, his transcendence, his greatness, his immensity, his all-otherness cannot be appreciated unless we consider that that allness, all-otherness, that transcendence became imminent, became near. And then his imminence, being near, can't really be appreciated or understood or valued unless we connect it with his transcendence. When you see, that's why Christmas, we celebrate a, a baby being born of a virgin, right? Jesus, the baby being born of a virgin. And all the world's okay with that, you know, generally speaking. And the reason why they're okay with that is because it's not connected with, to transcendence. His greatness, his magnificence, his all-otherness. And so the beauty of his transcendence is captured and clarified in his imminence. And his imminence is, the beauty of his imminence is captured and clarified in his transcendence. They both help you see the beauty of who God is. So thank you very much. It's really appreciated. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And as I was wrestling with 2 Timothy 3, I was debating whether I want to take several weeks to go through, you know, a number of weeks to go through 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because frankly, the first half of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a laundry list, right? That's what it is. It's just a laundry list of, if you use that term, or a shopping list, as it were, of the concerns that Paul has that he's presenting to Timothy. You'll see it as we read through it. Um, serious times are, are, are coming, Paul is saying. Difficulties are coming. And he's trying to prepare Timothy for these difficulties that are coming. So if we're going to title the message, we could title it The Difficulties in the Church in the Last Days because this is just a preface, but Tim, or Paul's description of Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a description of the church in the last day. It's not a description of the world. It's a description of the church. It, there's two ways we can recognize that. Number one is Paul's writing to Timothy, trying to help him to be a good pastor to an errant church. And so he's talking about church stuff. He's not talking about world stuff. He's talking about church stuff. Every step of the way through, he's talking about church stuff. He's talk, talking about worship stuff. But even right smack dab in the middle of it, and all around he's talking about preaching the word. But right smack dab in the middle of it, what do you see? They have, verse 5, the appearance of godliness but denies power. The world doesn't have the appearance of godliness. But the people of the church do. And so it's really important, just for starters, for a precursor, a foundation, a preface, as it were, that we understand that he's talking about the church. So you could say that for a title for the message this morning, you could say, the problems in the church in the last days. You could certainly say that. But I think to say that is to miss the point. Paul, I would argue, does not tell Timothy 
does not give Timothy this laundry list so that he can merely be aware of what's coming. Paul's communication to Timothy is a whole lot more hopeful than that. Is what Paul describes the struggles of the church will be, is that true? Absolutely it's true. And if I just say this, we are living in the last times, as was Timothy. We think that last times is right before Christ returns, or we are in the time before Christ returns. And so we are in the last times, and these times are difficult times. We could say that it's a laundry list trying to help us be prepared for the difficulties in the church. And you could say that and agree that that's, okay, that's, that's true. That is part of it. But again, I think it's much more hopeful. What Paul is talking to Timothy about in giving him this warning and this caution, it's not even really a warning, it's more of a caution, a heads up as it were, is something much more hopeful because Paul's focus is not on this at all. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, I would argue Paul's focus is not on merely Times are going to get more difficult. They will. But Paul's communication with Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is more focused on what Timothy ought to be focused on and needs to be focused on. And in light of that, the focus that Timothy should have is something that Timothy then should pass on to who? Faithful ones who will then do what? Pass it on to others also. That's what we saw early on in the book of 2 Timothy, right? And so it's important that we see the laundry list, but I'm not going to break down and examine every piece of the laundry list. It, I think it's appropriate to do so. But we're not going to do that. I'd encourage you to do so, to think about what this really means. But we're not going to do that today. I'm going to identify a few and stop on a few of them. But I'm not going to primarily focus on that. I'm going to primarily focus on the, the purpose for it. So let's read it. We're actually going to look at, Lord willing, Chapter 3, verse 1 through uh, 15 this morning. And uh, I will pick up on uh, 14 and 15 next time as well. But let's start in chapter 3, verse 1, shall we? But understand this. We could add in Timothy. We could add in Steve. We could add in members of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church. <coughs> but understand this. It's interesting it's not said as a warning. It just says, it's said as what? Understand. Information. Understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. It's not there may. I'm just commenting as we're going through, commentating as we go through. It's not saying that we may see these difficult times, but these difficult times, what? Will come. And I want to remind you, what he's saying is, these difficult times will come in the church. This is going to become, in the end times, the MO of the church. This is not talking about the world again. It's talking about the church. This is going to be the MO of the church. Now, one of the reasons why Paul gives this, is before we start reading the, the laundry list, is because Timothy needs to examine himself, right? He needs to evaluate himself to see if he is a last days type of member of a church or not. This description that we have. Those he teaches also need to examine themselves to see if they are. 
That's why I said it's appropriate for you to consider and evaluate in depth these descriptions for this laundry list. And those then faithful ones who will teach others also, it's appropriate for them to examine to see if these are descriptions of me. So what does he say? But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And uh, let me pause again in verse 1 and say it's interesting that times of difficulty is not the way we typically translate as times of difficulty. I appreciate your confession this morning, Andrew. You talked about difficulties. You talked about difficulties as in, what are some of them you said again? Having a headache, not sleeping, pain, struggles. Uh, you're talking about the theology of pain, valuable and purposeful. It's interesting that Paul's definition of difficulties is very different from that. Not denying that those are difficulties, okay? But Paul's definition of difficulties here is much more dramatic than that. And he's saying, I want to remind you, that they will come in the church. They will become, as it were, the MO of the church. And these are difficulties. Well, what are these difficulties? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasing, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people as these. Or avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men will also oppose the truth. Men of corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened at me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet all, uh, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will grow, go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. And from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which, were, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, faith in Christ Jesus. That's our text this morning. Now, one of our problems with this text is very interesting. And it's a problem all through the ages. And, to, and I want to address it right off the bat. Our problem with this text is when we read this text, we don't tend to see ourselves in it, do we? We don't tend to see ourselves in it. And my hope is this morning that we'll expand our understanding so that if necessary, we will be able to see our, ourselves in it, if necessary. Because see, one of our problems is that we typically think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. That's a biblical statement, by the way. We typically think of ourselves jadedly. Not jaded in a bad way, but jadedly in a good way. We tend to see ourselves as better than we really are. We tend not to think of ourselves as desperate sinners in need of a redeemer. 
although we know that theologically we are desperate sinners in need of a, of, of a redeemer. So when we read these type of lists, something happens so often in our thinking. What happens is we almost immediately go to the third person plural. We almost immediately go to the word they. Yeah, those people. Yes, they. And we don't even take time to think about and evaluate and analyze and prayerfully consider if it ought to be a first person singular versus a third person plural. If it should be I or me. You see, if we read this list, we, ought, we need to start with first person singular. And here's why. Because he says, Timothy... I want you to understand this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, and in context, in the church. Can I just ask you a quick question? Are you the church? If you are the church, then we must start with I and me, first person singular, not third person plural. Does that make sense? Because it says that these kind of times will come. So if we're going to consider it, we've got to start with me or I. I may be here in this text. This text may be about me. That's where we need to start. See, our problem is that we elevate it to its final conclusion. When we read these statements, we take them to their final destination and say, well, that's not me. Right? Does that make sense? Like, let me just choose one. Disobedient to parents. Now, that's not me. I'm growing up. I'm married. I've left and cleft. So I, I can't, it's not, it's not a matter of disobedient to parents anymore. If you're married, you're not, you can't disobey your parents anymore. Because you leave and cleave. Does that make sense? So it's easy to say, well, that's not me. And just move by it, Right? Okay, well, maybe that's true if you're not married. If you're married and you, you don't have children, then it, it, it doesn't even apply to your household. But you, we can grab something like um, heartless. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? Heartless. And so we take it to its final conclusion, and we say, well, its final conclusion is almost animalistic, isn't it? If I'm absolutely heartless, absolutely in every way heartless, that's kind of like an animal, instinctual. Well, that's not me. I just gave myself a pass. And why? Because I can think of one place that I was heartful just recently. I can think of one place where I cared for that old lady that fell on the street. I cared for the, the, the lady in the grocery store who couldn't reach the top shelf and get the, the, the product, so I reached up there and grabbed it for her. Yeah, I did that, so I'm not heartless. Okay, move along. Because I found a snapshot in time or a few snapshots in time where I was not heartless. Therefore, I conclude I'm not heartless. And that's not the point of the text. We have to always fold into the teaching in the grand sweep of Scripture that there is something called common grace. Right? God's common grace is always pouring out all across the world to all people so that no person is ever as evil as they possibly could be. 
In other words, God keeps everyone in check. Which means there's no one who is that characteristic. You see, when we take it to its final, ultimate destination, it's a caricature. But we do that because we don't want to find ourselves there. Does that make sense? And so it's appropriate that we, we start with me or I, first person singular, not rush off the third person plural, and it's really appropriate that we don't create the caricature of its final conclusion. It's about character. It's about characteristics. The present, presentation Paul is giving Timothy is about characteristics. The person is characteristically this way. There may, there may very well be exceptions. Like someone who's a lover of money could still give a little bit of money away, right? If I got a billion dollars and I come in and I give ten, Ken $20,000, that's pretty impressive, isn't it, for you, Ken? I mean, he's happy, right? He got 20000 bucks. His car was broken down. His truck was broken down. He couldn't get his truck fixed because he didn't have any money. And so I said, here, here's $20,000, Ken. Wow. He's not a lover of money. Really? Is that our evaluation? No, I don't think so. It's about characteristic. Am I a lover of money or not a lover of money? Does that make sense so far? It's appropriate that we start there when we evaluate ourselves because we always find ourselves creating something that we're not so that it gives us a pass. That's not what Paul wants Timothy to do. Paul's warning Timothy that this will become, this will become the MO of the church. So we can't all give ourselves a pass. <laughs> In fact, he doesn't even give Paul a pass or Timothy a pass. He wants Timothy to evaluate this in himself and then others that follow. So let's go through this list. I'm not going to parse it all out for you, but I want to touch on a few things. And the ones I'm going to touch on are because I really want to help us understand how to think about them more clearly than what I just said just now. So there's just a couple that I want to point out. You'll notice that the very first one says in verse 2, for people will be what? Lovers of themselves. Now, that word lovers can be drug around now. It's implied in a lot of the other statements. Lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of being prideful, lovers of themselves, by the way, what that is, just proud of who they are, lovers of themselves, a different form of lovers of self. Arrogant is about loving self. Abusive is about loving not others, right? But uh, we, we abuse for what reason? To gain something, right, for ourselves because we love our ways. Exactly. I want to show how that works. Disobedient parents. Children are disobedient to parents because they love themselves and they've got a better way that they think is best for them, right? Does that make sense? So we'll leave that aside for this at this point, but hold that thought. I'm going to just read through again, just being to parents, ungrateful, unholy, just remember that, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, that is, they're, they're, they're never satisfied, slanderous, they're attacking others, without self-control, it's interesting, the next, these two go to hand in hand, without self-control and brutal. 
They do whatever they want to do, and that means you pay the price for what they want to do. They're brutal to others. See that? They don't love good, which means they love evil. Just remember that. Now, let's see, where are we? Um, they're treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Then, we, then he brings back the word, doesn't he? What's the word? Lovers of pleasure. And here is one of the keys that unlock the understanding of this whole text. Rather than lovers of God. Important, really important we grap grapple with that one. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And he continues it in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, which we already referenced as evidence that he's referring to the church. But having the, the appearance, the form of godliness, having the appearance that, that they're godly people, but their life has no spiritual what? moorings or more, no spiritual power to it, no spiritual thrust, no spiritual strength, no spiritual stick to no spiritual long life. There's a form of godliness. It, there's a hint. There's a sniff of it. There's a blush of it. But in reality, in the way their life is lived, it's like there's no fuel in the tank. It looks like a car, but it never goes anywhere. They call it a yard car, right? It's decoration. Bad idea. But they deny its power. So how do we think about this long list? Probably the best way to think about this long list is how do we get into that long list? How, is, how does someone who is in the church end up in this list as characteristic? And by the way, he doesn't have to have all those characteristics. He's just saying this is the type of people who will be in the church. They will primarily populate the church. That's why I say it's the MO. How do people who are part of a church end up looking like this in the last days? Real important question. And this gets to the whole point of the text. You'll notice I'm not really unpacking the text very much. Go back to chapter 1, if you would. Chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your, what, sincere faith. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in, or dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Now he says that as well because he's not seeing Timothy at this point. He did have it. He knew it. He had a sincere faith, and he's... He's assuming it's still there, although he doesn't see it. For this reason, verse 6, I remind you to what? Fan into, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has gave, gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. By the way, do you hear a hint of some of the chapter 3 alternatives or counterpoints? there in that little list self-control power love 
Very important. We see this connection. So he tells Timothy, I, 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 I encourage you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, the gift of your salvation. Fan it into flames. Verse 8, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Instead, what? But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard me until the day that until that day what has been entrusted to me, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then he goes into the churches in Asia that have turned away because they didn't guard the good deposit. They turned away from Paul. Why do I bring this up? Very important that we get this. And we can go into chapter 2 and see chapter 2 continues to reinforce that. Why do, we, why do we bring this up now? Here's why. In context, it gives understanding to chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Why does the end of the days, church, end up with the ammo like this? That should be the major question. How is it possible that the last day's church could have as their MO these kind of difficulties of chapters three, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 9? And a simple summation of it is because they didn't guard what was entrusted to them. That's why. We, by nature, guard stuff. We guard things that we identify as valuable. Paul tells Timothy, I know you had a sincere faith. I trust you still do. I know your grandmother and your mother had a sincere faith. It was evident every step of their life. And when I was with you, it was evident in you. I trust it is still there. And so because of that, I remind you to what? Fan into flame the gift. Fan into flame the gift. I remind you by the Holy Spirit, verse 14 of chapter 1, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Here's the point of chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The, the, the point of chapter 3, 1 through 9, is informed by chapter 1, the section we just read, and that is this. Paul is, is challenging Timothy to fan it into flame and to guard the deposit. So what he lays out here for Timothy is this. Either you are someone, and either I am someone, who is fanning actively fanning into flames what has been entrusted to me, the gift, and I'm 
I'm guarding that, or I'm a chapter 3 person, 1 through 9. That's the categories Paul now has given us. I'm either someone who characteristically, we flaw, we're flawed people, we fail, we're sinners, we repent, we get up. He, he who is godly does what? The righteous one falls seven times and gets up every time, right? That's what the scriptures tell us. But the idea here is either we are people who, who are characterized by a sincere faith. Well, what is a sincere faith? A sincere faith evidences itself because it affects us so that we do what? We fan it into flames, which is a continuous thing. If it's sincere, we are fanning it, ever fanning it into greater and greater flames, never satisfied with the amount of flame we have, always fanning it into greater and characteristically fanning it into greater and greater and greater flames. If we have a sincere faith, we do what? We are forever doing what? We are forever guarding it, protecting it. By the way, the implication of guarding and protecting it is that you know it. How do you guard something you don't know? you got to at least know the boundaries, right? When you're in the army and you had to guard something, you knew where it was at, right? Kind of, kind of difficult to be told, go guard, go guard something. Oh, go, go guard, go guard the missile, Ken. He was in, you were in the air force, weren't you? Though, sorry. Go guard the plane, Ken. Uh, where is it? Doesn't matter. Just guard the plane. What kind of plane? Doesn't matter. Just go guard the plane. Well, that's stupid. You need to know it, right? got to know it. That makes sense, doesn't it? How do you guard something you don't know? It's not, by the way, if you don't know your faith, then it's a, not a sincere faith. If you have a sincere faith, one of the evidences that you have a sincere faith is that you are forever finding yourself fanning it into flames. You're not happy with a smolder. You're not, happy, you're not happy with a with a with a little flicker. Not satisfied. Never satisfied. Always satisfied in Christ, but always wanting more of Him. So He's always fanning, 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 guarding, 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 fanning, 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 guarding, 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 fanning, 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 guarding, guarding, guarding. And if that's not happening. By nature, you find yourself in chapter 3. So I need to stop right here and ask ourselves, actually, chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. I need to ask our, us to ask ourselves this really important question. Based upon the very first statement Paul makes in 2 Timothy 3, 1. In the last days, difficult times will come in the church. The MO of the church will become this. So in light of that, we need to ask ourselves, not am I this, chapter 3. That's not what we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves something much more important. And the much more important thing is, what's your faith look like? That's the really important thing. Is it a sincere faith? 
Now we all, I hope you all understand what I mean by sincere faith. Something that's insincere, if you say, I really want something and it's insincere, it's evidenced, right? Isn't it? I really, 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 really want to have a Jeep. I really, 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 really want to have a Jeep. If I never have a Jeep, is that really sincere? If I don't sacrifice for it, is it sincere? I'm not talking about faith now, I'm just talking about something that I really want. Is it sincere if, I, if, if, I, if I'm spending my money on all sorts of things, but it's not Jeep stuff? Is it sincere? I'm not talking about needful things. Like, you need to eat, right? Make sense? You need to eat. In order to eat, you've got to pay, right? In order to eat. But, you know, I really, more than anything else, I really want to have a Jeep. Oh, my goodness, that's what I want more than anything else is a Jeep. I don't, but that's all I want is a Jeep. And then for breakfast, I go to Anna Marie's every morning. And then lunchtime rolls around, and every day I go out to uh, some other restaurant. And then dinner rolls around, and I have dinner every night at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Or Morton's. Or Sullivan's. Or any other expensive places. Yeah, it's good food, right? It's good food. But where's my sincerity? Oh, and let's add to it. And then, and then I find myself every day rushing off to the store and buying stuff that I don't need. But I saw it on TV. Or I'm just walking to the store and not shopping for anything. And I come out, and every time I come out, I'm pushing my cart and it's full of stuff. Where's my sincerity? Is it after a Jeep? Is it even close? But I'll spend a little bit of time reading about Jeeps. I'll stop whenever I see a Jeep and look at it and talk about it. I got all sorts of knowledge about the Jeep. I can talk about the two-door and the four-door and the CJ7 and the CJ5 and, and, and the old uh, 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 World War II Willie's Jeeps and, and, and on and on. I can talk about how the four-wheel drive system works. I can talk about how the, the windshield goes down and up in the front. I, I can talk about, you know, all the accessories I can put on it. I can talk about how well it climbs mountains. I can watch the videos of rock hopping and on and on. I can do all that, right? And so I must be sincere, right? Is there any sincerity there at all? Where's my sincerity lie? You said, Tom, what was it? Yeah, <laughs> the shopping cart. It's in the, it, it's, in the, it's in the restaurants, isn't it? The evidence is right there. You see, sincerity of faith, or sincerity of anything, in light of the Jeep, the sincerity of the person of the Jeep means that I'm eating cereal at home in the morning, if necessary, right? The sincerity of the Jeep and the pursuit of the Jeep means that I'm not going out for lunch every day. I'm having a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on cheap white bread, like generic. And I'm spreading it thin to make the peanut butter and jelly last as long as possible. And I'm certainly not going to Ruth's Chris for dinner every night. Instead, I'm 
buying chicken thighs at 75 cents a pound. Or something cheaper. That's what I'm doing. And what do I do with the extra money? I'm packing it away for something, right? What am I packing it away for? The Jeep. And now along with that, the accompanying thing is what? I'm learning about Jeeps. I'm studying Jeeps. I'm, I'm grappling with what's best. What am I going to buy? And how's that going to I'm sincerely in pursuit of it, right? Does that make sense? I don't want to belabor the point. But the question, why I, why I present all that to you is I want to ask you, and I want to ask myself this very important question, do you have a sincere faith? That's the question. Do you have a sincere faith? See, because he tells us in the last days, difficult times are going to come. The church is going to look like this, not like sincere faith, fanning into flames and uh, guarding the good deposit. That's not what it's going to look like. It's going to look like chapter 3. It's going to be self-love Baptist church. It's going to be lovers of pleasure Baptist church. It's going to be heartless Baptist church. It's going to be unappeasable Baptist church. It's going to be ungrateful Baptist church. It's going to be lovers of money Baptist church. L-O-M-B-C. Lovers of Money Baptist Church. L O M B C. It's going to be S W C B C. Swollen with Conceit Baptist Church. That's what it's going to be. So the question Paul is challenging Timothy with is not where do you, do you primarily do you see yourself in this? The question Paul is challenging Timothy with and the reader of 2 Timothy with is, do you see yourself with sincere faith? And sincere faith is something where you're fanning into flames. Sincere faith is someone who's protecting or guarding the deposit. It's the character of the person. Sincere faith is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. As it says, chapter 1. A sincere faith is not ashamed. So the question before you and I is this. Are you someone, and am I someone with a sincere faith? Are you someone who is fanning your faith into flames? Am I someone who's fanning my, my, my faith into flames? Am I on fire with regard to the faith or am I on fire with something else? How do you evaluate that? What moves you? That's the question. What's your reason for getting up in the morning? What's your reason for going to work? What's your reason for recreation? What's your reason for working around your house? What's the reason for and your relationships? And on and on and on. What's your reason? What's the point? What's the goal? What's the end game? What's the purpose? Are you guarding the deposit? Are you ashamed of the gospel? How do we know if we're ashamed of the gospel? That's a really easy one, isn't it? How do you know if you're ashamed of the gospel? That's an easy answer. 
There is something in all of us that we're ashamed of, isn't it? There's something in all of us that we're really ashamed of. Probably a lot of things in all of us we're ashamed of. Just lay aside the faith for a second. Lay aside the gospel for a second. There's something in all of us or some things in all of us we're ashamed of. And you know what? With the things we're truly ashamed of, what do we do with it? What do we do with the things we're ashamed of? We hide them. We pack them away. We dress them up. That's what, you know, you get that, that, that phrase, you know, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. That's what we do. We put lipstick on the pig. The things we're ashamed of, we try to dress up, we try to clean up, we try to hide, we put it in a box, we try to do everything we possibly can to keep it hidden so nobody sees it. Are you ashamed of the gospel? By the way, that idea is both towards saved and unsaved people. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Does your life, the way you live, the way you speak, the way you communicate to the saved, the way you speak and communicate to the lost, does it say you have a sincere faith or does it not? See, if we, if we don't have a sincere faith, if we're ashamed of the gospel, if we're not fanning into flames, if we're not guarding the deposit that's given within us, then we are. Second Timothy Free Baptist Church. That's who we are. And I know that sounds really harsh, but in the harshness we find hope. We'll find that in just a little bit. But we can't find hope, true hope, unless we get down to nitty-gritty and ask ourselves who we really are. Who are we? Who am I? Who are you? Remember, we've got to go first-person plural first before we even go to third-person plural, us. Who am I? Very important question. Notice, if you would, jump back to chapter 3. He says that, <coughs> verse 7, the, this church are people who are always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. They're learning stuff. They're growing in their understanding. It's not that they're necessarily ignorant of the truth. But what he's saying is, when it, they, verse 7, that they never are able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, he's talking about they're never able to arrive, they never seem to arrive at that point where the truth becomes something worthy of being proud of versus being ashamed of. The truth is never sincere. It's isolated from every aspect of their life, from most aspects of their life. It never reached that point of being worthy of being guarded, protected, defended. It doesn't reach that point. So they never are able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Or jump back to verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. They have appearance of godliness. They come to church every Sunday or most Sundays. They sing the songs. They seem to listen to the message. They may even take notes. But when push comes to shove, the way life is lived is disconnected from the gospel, effectively ashamed. 
the way we live life, the way we interact with life, the way we interact with our work, the way we interact with our neighbors, the way we interact with our, our loved ones and our friends and our acquaintances and our co-recreators, and on and on, is somehow distinct. Somehow distinct. Strangely distinct. Some would, argue, some would argue demonically distinct from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is interesting what Paul does in verse 8. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of corrupted mind and disqualified regarding the faith. It's interesting what he does. Paul takes these two people, Janus and Jambres, which may not even have been real people. They are, in Jewish lore, they are two people that they've always, the two names they've always used for the magicians of Pharaoh who generated all of the uh, false miracles when Moses was doing his thing. May have been real people. May, have, may very well have been. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. It's interesting on one level that he takes people outside of Israel and says these people that are making up the church are just like people what? Outside the church. They're just like them. What does he mean, just like them? What does he mean by that? Just like them. It's intriguing. They, well, the way they're just like them is, is these two people, Janice and Jambres, opposed Moses. What he means by that is he op they opposed God's work. Does that make sense? When they opposed Moses, they opposed God's work because Moses was there to do God's work in doing what? What was Moses' task? To set the people free, right? To set the people free. Free from what? Free from slavery outside of God, right? That's his task, to set them free from slavery outside of God. Separated from God, separated from the promise. He's saying that these people in the church that are going to make up the last day's church are going to be doing that very thing. They're going to be in opposition to the plan of God. They're going to oppose the things of God. Rather than advancing the cause of God, Moses, right? You see that? Was Moses advancing the plan of God? He absolutely was. Was he advancing the cause of God? Yes, set my people free. He was actually God's mouthpiece. Set my people free. He wasn't talking about his own people. He's speaking for God. Set my people free. Rather than being God's mouthpiece, proclaiming God's plan for his people, they spoke something else. That's what they did. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, in the last days, difficult times will come. People will populate your church, Timothy, that will, contrary to speaking truth to one another, other people in the church, they will speak 
opposition. That doesn't mean, let's not take it to its final conclusion, that does not mean that Steve gets up and preaches every Sunday in the morning and in the afternoon every one of these people are, 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 having, are serving roast pasta for, for lunch and destroying the message. No, what it means is that rather than being after God's plan, they themselves are after their own plan, and being after their own plan, then they are going to encourage others to also be after either their own plan or the other person's own plan, but have nothing to do with godliness. In effect, if I'm not walking in step with God's plan, I am by very nature what? In opposition to God's plan. Does that make sense? So if that's true, if I may just go back to where we were, if that's true, let me ask you to ask yourself this question. Do you find yourself ministering Christ to other people regularly? It's an important question to ask yourself. In our church, do you find yourself ministering Christ to other people regularly? Now, let me ask you this question. Do you find yourself talking to people in our church ever? Do you? Let me expand out. Do you ever find yourself talking to other Christians? Ever? If you don't, we've got real problems. If you're not talking Christ to other people on a regular basis, on the gospel, on a regular basis, you know what you're doing? You're opposing the gospel. That's what you're doing. Because, see, you're either speaking things that are gospel stuff or you're speaking things that are opposed to the gospel. That doesn't mean you can't ever talk about sports. You do realize that. You can. doesn't mean you can't ever talk about work. You can. doesn't mean you can't ever talk about health. You can. doesn't mean you can't talk about vacation. You can. doesn't mean you can't ever talk about your car. You can. But everything is from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. So everything has to somehow be connected to gospel or it's in opposition to gospel. You see, if it stands alone, it's, it, it is declaring itself to be a gospel. And by very nature, it's in opposition to the gospel. So Janice and Jambridge were opposed to God's plan if we're not after God's plan as evidenced in our ministry in each other's lives, our speaking in each other's lives, then we are by very nature speaking things in opposition to God. Because in very nature, we're, we're, we're declaring that, that can provide satisfaction, that can provide hope, that can provide purpose, that can provide meaning. That's a lie! You're in opposition. You're a, you're, you're a 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9 kind of person. And the church then becomes a 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9 Baptist church. And maybe there ought to be some churches that actually have that on their sign, because that's what they are. What's the name of your church? 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9. Or, just to shorten it all up, DTBC. Difficult times, Baptist Church. Here we go. Real important questions here. Real important thoughts as we think about the grand sweeping contest here. Notice what Paul says next. 
Verse 9, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Ultimately, those two men were exposed, weren't they? Well, of course they were. The, the children of Israel were let go. Not only they let go, but they took the spoils of Egypt with them. Pretty clearly, they were fools. Paul says to Timothy, understand this. And this is really important. Understand this. Difficult times are going to come, but those are short-lived. Because ultimately, they will be exposed. Whether they're exposed in this life or the next, they will be exposed. They will. It's inevitable. If you are not after the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will be exposed. In this life or the next, you will be exposed. The simple reality is the scriptures tell us that this won't work. Difficult times, Baptist Church, will be exposed. It will become very evident, inevitably. It doesn't work. But I want you to notice, going back to verse 8, he says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. You know what he's saying? He's saying, Difficult times, Baptist Church, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, Baptist Church. People who are there, they're not saved people. They have a form of godliness, they're not saved people. Saved people, what does God say? If he began the good work in you, he will what? He will continue to perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important we ask this question, who am I? So what's, what do we do with all this? This sounds kind of downer, kind of, doesn't it? Well, you know what we do with this? We go back to chapter 1 first. Sincere faith, fan into flames, don't be ashamed, protect your good deposit. But notice where he goes next. You, however, this is just an expansion of chapter 1. You, however, Timothy, and the faithful ones who you will teach, and hopefully more of those who follow, you, however, Steve, and each one of you individually, you, however, Paul says, and here's the whole point, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened in, to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endure, yet the Lord rescued, uh, the Lord, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Stop there. What do we do with everything we've looked at at this point? He says to Timothy, but you, however, past tense, have, right? Past tense, you have followed, and he gives this list. Teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, steadfastness, persecutions. What's the point of all this? Paul tells Timothy, the point of all this, know this is coming, understand this is coming, but you, that's just there for data, for information's sake, but you have, past tense, followed. That's really important. 
by the way, if we fold it back in, in other words, it's contrasted with verses 1 through 9, which begs the question, have we, are we people who have followed Paul's teaching, conduct, and notice he doesn't just leave a, te a teaching, that is data. You follow my teaching, my conduct, lived out teaching, right? Lived it out. My aim in life, the philosophy of, of, of living, the, the reason for living, my first principles, my aim in life, my goal. You lived it out. My faith, you've lived it out. You have that same faith. My patience, you have that patience in Christ. My love, you, you've evidenced the same love that I have in the past. My steadfastness, Timothy, you've been steadfast. My persecutions, you've been persecuted too. And sufferings, that's why he says in verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even while all those around you are going, going from bad to worse in the church, you have continued in the past to grow in Christ in these ways. not one characterized by deceiving and being deceived. You're becoming more and more characterized by the teaching, by the faith, by the love, by the aim in life, and on and on and on. And then he wraps it all up in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. We'll get into, into 16 and 17 next time. <coughs> but as for you, Timothy, carry that on. As for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned and, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it. He tells Timothy, don't stop now. Continue on in the faith. Continue on in what you've learned and become firmly convinced of. Or firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, Paul, Verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Continue on in, in the truth is what he's saying. The, the reason why Paul gives us, gives Timothy and uh, by extension me and you, <coughs> 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, is for this very purpose. To tell you and I, your hope, my hope, is not in what makes sense perhaps in the day. What our hope is not to be like everybody else in the church. Because in, in the church, difficult times are going to come in the last days. My hope is not to look like the same as everybody else in the church. My hope is found in the truth that is Jesus Christ. He must inform me. He must rule. It must be His kingdom come. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In my manner of life, my aim of life. I love that phrase. Oh, that our church would be called aim of life Baptist church. There's an answer for that being Christ. What we have firmly believed is what rules our lives. It's what informs our lives. 
So he, s he starts out by saying who we were, who Timothy was. But then he goes to, from here, this is what you must be, Timothy. And the whole thing is summed up in, stay with Christ. Let him inform you. Remind yourself of the truth all the time. Cling to Christ. Cling to the truth. Guard it. Protect it. Know it. Know him. And have sincere faith. Now, the encouraging thing for us is if we're his, if we're Christ's, and it's going to happen, we will. We will. I would present to you that if we have faith in Christ, if Christ is our Redeemer, if we've been saved, we will look different even in our little church. We'll look different than our church. Do you realize that? Because in the last days, difficult times will come. It's not just that we'll stand out out there. We'll stand out here. Stand out right here. Not because we're odd or different. We're really good at that. But we'll stand out because of there's a flame. We'll stand out because it's roaring. What happens when there's a roaring flame? It makes people uncomfortable, doesn't it? Got to back off. But supernaturally, we're drawn to it. So what happens when we have a sincere faith is that it'll roar by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will be, it will be a, a blaze. And it'll look different here. It'll look different right here. Even on Sunday morning, it'll look different. Sincere faith will stand out because in end days, difficult times will come in the church. It'll stand out because it won't be the M.O. It may be the M.O. of the church, but it won't be the M.O. of you and that you will stand out because of your love for Christ, because of the sincere faith, because you're not ashamed. So the challenge to us <coughs> and encouragement is firstly, you have a sincere faith. That's the challenge. The encouragement is that, and you've heard me say it many, many times, but if we seek him, we'll find him. If we seek him with all our heart. And the encouragement in this text more specifically is if we do seek him that way, you know what's going to happen? It'll be evident. And other people who are, will be like you will be what? They'll be rejoicing in the flame. Not you. They'll be reveling in the flame. Because it's not about you. That's why John said, I must decrease and he must increase. It won't be about you. It'll be about the flame. It's about Jesus. It's about the, the sincere faith that is at work in you. That's the encouragement. It will happen. Seek him. It will happen. Fan into flame. It will happen. Guard it. It will happen. No. Cling to. Remain in. Stay with what you've been taught. 
cling to it, live by it, follow it, enjoy Christ. And you know what's going to happen? Everything. In Redeeming Grace, that the church could end up being SFBC, Sincere Faith Baptist Church. be as one flame encourages another flame encourages another flame encourages another flame encourages another flame next thing you know we have a blaze for the glory of Christ oh what a day that would be that we would be people who would stand in opposition to the difficult days that we would be a people by the grace of God that would be light in the midst of darkness that is found in church. That we would be lovers of Christ rather than lovers of self. Lovers of Christ rather than lovers of money. Lovers of Christ rather than lovers of safety. Lovers of Christ rather than lovers of security. Lovers of Christ rather than rather than <coughs> lovers of temporal things, lovers of eternity by the power of grace, by the power of Christ. Amen? Let us pray and seek that light. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <coughs> because we, we are living in the last days, help us. Because too often we find ourselves with an insincere faith. Help us. Because too often we find ourselves ashamed of the, of the smolder, let alone a flame. Help us. Too often we leave the gates wide open instead of guarding the faith that has been trusted, entrusted to us, guarding the gospel. Help us. Too often we are lovers of all the wrong things. Help us. Change our hearts. Help us to realize first our need for repentance. And then help us to turn from Janice and Jambers type of living. And fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. So we ask you to glorify yourself in us personally and in us corporately. Change us in ways only you could do it. For your glory, in your name I pray.